Hello and welcome to another episode of our Brothers Creed podcast. We talk about motivation, experiences, and exploring the world around us. We're the Thomas Brothers. I'm Ethan. And I'm Jared. And today we're going to talk about a interesting episode that talks really about the military blunders and kind of blunders of the government uh, in some ways. Uh, there are several military campaigns and a government uh what would you call me? Instances or actions, actions that they've done that have been absolutely fails. Some uh, ploys that they maybe thought were good, but they weren't good. They weren't good ideas at all. Uh, and so we're going to talk about that. Uh, but it's uh, some from ancient history and some from Modern the Obama, Obama administration <laughs> <laughs> and Biden and, and Biden and administration. Biden. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so uh, let's go ahead and jump in. All right, let's do it. Spartans. What is your profession? Any man who must say, I am the king, is no true king. What I do have are a very particular set of skills. Skills that make me a nightmare. If I can change, and you can change, everybody can change! Let us all unite! Let us fight for a new world! A decent world! Okay, so the first one we were going to talk about uh, was actually more recent in the Biden administration was uh, Biden pulling out of Afghanistan prematurely. Yeah, what an absolute fail. Maybe, depending. I I was watching a video today, and, you know, Biden had stated, he stated, oh, well, nobody told me that we shouldn't pull out. And then it was like three different clips of three different generals saying, yeah, we suggested they leave at least 2,500 troops there or 3,000 troops uh, we didn't not want to pull forever, out. but at least for a while until yeah. they can solve it. So, uh, first off, I typed a bunch of different things in Google, and probably the first three pages of everything I typed in Google, the first three pages of Google search returns was Biden made the right de- right decision. You know, it wasn't as bad as they said. Uh, Republicans are trying to smash Biden's name, oh, and it yeah. was all pro. Uh, leftist material stuff that was just, I mean, it was like hard to even find non-bias and I'm not even looking for like right-wing bias stuff either. I'm just looking for like general stuff. Like what exactly did we leave? I want a list of everything that we left. Yeah. It's like, oh, well, you know, it's like even that is in debate exactly what we we left. They don't even particularly know. I've, I've seen numbers that say, oh, we left kind of the big number is $7.12 billion. That's what they say. But then there's other places, that other areas that said, well, we actually left probably more like tens of billions of dollars in equipment and everything else there. Yeah. Yeah. Well, did you did you go to like DuckDuckGo and then it was like a first thing that showed up? <laughs> well, yeah. I mean, it's just like, I don't know. It, it was hard to find any straightforward information, but I really kind of just feel like that's kind of the media in general. Yeah, um, that's true. You know, and I'm talking both sides. I'm not talking just liberal agenda media. I'm talking, you know, other side too. And I don't even know who to believe anymore. I just want to. I just want a straightforward list, some honest answers. Well, it's like it's. I think the one example of how the media is doing this right now is like you, you, we talk about Johnny the Johnny Depp trial, right? Yeah. And anybody who watched that trial was like, "Wow, Amber Heard is psycho and she's a liar." Uh, but the media right now is trying to push so many articles out, like all these different. The New York Times, all these posts, they're trying to po- basically say, oh, Amber Heard got destroyed by uh, 
by a, a liar and the Me Too movement. This is a setback for the Me Too movement. And it's like, this is a demonstration of true toxic masculinity and, and, on, on women. Yeah, and it's so it's obvious. Like, like, wait a second. You guys didn't even watch the trial. And like, you didn't even, you don't have any idea what's going on. But like, it's so obvious that this narrative that they're pushing is totally different than what actually happened, what everybody believes. Yeah. Like, millions of people are on Johnny Depp's side in this. But the media is saying something totally different. It's like, well, you think that if the media is trying this hard to steer the ship in a different direction, think about coronavirus think about the withdrawal from afghanistan think about oh putin's war that's causing gas inflation you know putin's war putin's war putin's inflation that's why that gas putin's that's why everything's going costing more that's why we have shortages yeah well it's it's and it's kind of interesting to me is because you know the the um all of the media attention that this Johnny Depp heard trial w- got mm-hmm. and then how much attention did the uh, who was that Maxwell lady yeah none None. Yeah. None at all. And she was the one that, I mean, and that had like, that was like abuse and and, and stuff the of, highest uh, yeah, of minors and children. Yeah. And it's and like, oh, the, we don't want to hear that. Because of it's, government and at the yeah. highest levels of like the upper echelon. Of oh, you're going to, you're going to release a list of a bunch of people's names who, oh, we don't want that on TV. Oh, no, we're not going to have that. No. Yeah. We're not going to have that. No. That's because Clinton's name would be at the top of the list. Oh, jeez. Uh, <laughs> so a couple of things. I, did you hear okay. Elon Musk's? tweet he said it's more likely that uh i'll see these and it was like a picture of like a dinosaur a unicorn and like a leprechaun he's like it's more picture it's more likely that i'll see these in my lifetime uh than than this and it was like epstein's flight logs (laughs) (laughs) but anyway there's a lot of conspiracy that he was uh in with the epstein's as well so yeah well he's in some just some weird stuff with amber Heard. i was gonna say he's in (laughs) he's in everything man he's in it with Heard too and everything yeah um so uh, so some of the things that that I could find that were left behind, um, and this is just a smaller list. I know, Jared, you've got some other stuff. Um, so uh, s- some of the things that were, uh, and, and these kind of it really varies. And this is maybe that were left behind specifically right uh, at the, the the base or whatever else. But um, there were uh, seventy MRAPs, which is a mind. Um, uh, a mine, a, res- a mine resistant ambush protecting vehicle. I'm not make, they don't make those anymore. Yeah, so those are like uh, they cost like a million dollar piece, and uh, we left those there. Um, we left uh, the the number of Hummers that we left was kind of up in question. I saw one that said as as low as 27 fully loaded Hummers or Humvees, and then another one I saw was like thousands of them. And so I don't know exactly what that number was. Um, another thing I saw, uh, potentially 73 aircrafts. Um, they're not exactly sure what types, but um, the Pentagon claimed that, oh, those aircrafts will never fly again. That's what they claimed. But then they actually later acknowledged that the Taliban had successfully operated and extracted quite a few Apache helicopters that had been left. Um, and other advanced flight systems, they said, and the Apache helicopters knew thirty million dollars a piece. Well, and they were flying the thing around with a with a body hanging from it, like the yeah. next day. Yeah. Right. Yeah. The threat flying around the city with so, someone hanging from a rope off of the bottom of the yeah. thing. So, um, you know, supposedly they took uh, as many of these as they could put together and fly, and they took them and and took them to some undisclosed location that that we don't know where they are. So that's another thing. Um, they left a whole battery of um, 
counter rockets, artillery, and mortar systems, um, which they didn't really specify how many, but uh, some of these systems were like so advanced that they're just the these rockets. They're, they're ten million dollars a piece, and they're used to detect and shoot down incoming uh, rockets and artillery and mortars from uh, from opposing forces. So I mean, ten million dollars a piece, and they're like, oh, we have no idea how many there were. God, <laughs> jeez, man. It's just like, oh. And then and now we're spending how many how many how many billions four billion dollars or four no, forty million dollars we sent just sent to uh, uh, Ukraine billion. How much was it? Billion. Actually, I saw a thing today. It was like three hundred fifteen. Uh, I I don't I don't want to misquote or whatever, but it was like forty billion dollars. Yeah, something like that. It's like <laughs> we could just re. But the Afghan army gave up without even a fight. They there wasn't even a single fire, a single shot fired in defense. The Afghan army just walked yeah. away. Well, it was kind of funny that the the Afghan army was supposedly like three hundred thousand people strong, and then just all of a sudden the Taliban just got really strong <laughs> for some reason. It's like, oh geez, yeah, that's so, the same one in the same. Yeah, like um, how do you know how to fly these Apache helicopters? Oh wait, you're the same people we yeah. trained. <laughs> um. So I, I didn't have any specific information on like small arm stuff and personal gear. I don't know if you had any of that. Yeah, I, I, I the numbers are so all over the place. This one source I found that was like that was saying like the, the, this is what the Taliban's arsenal is as of today. I, I think that some of this includes what they had prior, which but, is what we gave them anyway. Yeah, what we gave them, but something. I mean, and then what that was left behind, which the numbers were inflated over. There's varying sources, but I, I uh, here it, on this one it says, and this is from uh, U.S. Government Accounting Office. Uh, this says they have about 358,000 assault rifles, 16,000 night vision goggles. I'd like to get my hands on at least one pair of those. Yeah, uh, for three thousand dollars. Eight thousand trucks, twenty-two thousand, hundred seventy Humvees. I'd also like to get my hands on one of those. Uh, 169 M1 13 tanks. Uh, 42,000 pickup trucks, 64,000 machine guns, 33 M17 helicopters, you know, uh, 28 Cessna planes, 28 Embar EBM Super Tucano planes. I mean, uh, all these helicopters and uh, 176 artillery pieces, basically you know, artillery cannons, 126,295 pistols. So I'd also like to get my hands on one of those. Uh, Some not. of them. They're military. Not actually, just probably one. Good. <laughs> well, I'm sure they're good. The military always goes to the lowest bidder. So. Well, yeah, <laughs> but they're probably Using Berettas. Them. <laughs> <Yeah>. <clears throat> so uh, anyway, it's uh, a, a disaster, uh, a modern disaster that was left. The, all this stuff was left, and the way that we pulled out, and these people literally, you, you saw the footage from the airplane, the, from the airport, right, where there's people literally climbing onto the wheel wells of the plane as it's taking off. Yeah. And they're falling off of the wells, because the wheel wells, because they're on the outside of a plane. Yeah. That's how desperate they are to get out of their country. Well, and I think, too, it's that it's not only, uh, not only did they leave equipment high and dry, but they left people high and dry. Yep. There were uh, uh, American citizens that were left over there. You know, some some of them maybe didn't want to leave and, and whatever else, but they, they a lot of them were just left, right? They left high and dry a lot of... Um, Afghan, Afghan sympathizers yeah, that uh, worked with us? Yeah. Um, contractors and stuff? Contractors and interpreters and a bunch of different types of people that, that now, because they 
assisted the U.S. and that they worked with the U.S. and even shot back at the Taliban, they're fresh meat. Persona non grata. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. They're going around killing them. Yeah, so... So basically, we we go to go to a country, promise people all this stuff, and then we abandon them at the last minute. Yeah. So, so it doesn't um, bode well for the American uh, America's word. Yeah. At all. However you look at it, and whatever side you're on, I would say that it's still defined as a blunder. That it's still oh, defined yeah. as as not done the right way. You know, whether we were supposed to leave some people there or. Or, or or completely pull out. That's neither here nor there. But just the way it was done was terrible. Yeah, there was there was some uh, some issues there. Yeah. So we're gonna talk about some other ones here. Um, one of the ones that I, I think is a cool story, uh, and it has to do with the Second Punic War. Now, this war happened in 1216 BC, and this is the the infamous Hannibal. Uh, Barca, who famously crossed the Alps into Italy with, he was a Carthaginian from Carthage. Uh, He crossed the Alps with 38,000 cavalry, uh, infantry, 8,000 cavalry, and 38 elephants. So he crossed the Alps with elephants. Uh, At the end of the Alps, though, most of those elephants didn't make it. Uh, I was going to say 38, I mean, that's a lot of elephants, but that's not as many as I thought. Most of them died of starvation. Uh, or uh, died along the way. But they came into the vast Roman army of around 80,000 men. So this was like one of the biggest chunks of the Roman army. Uh, and it was that piece of the army was raised to oppose uh, Hannibal. He was going to hit the heart of Rome, uh, led by two Roman consuls uh, at uh, Can Canes, I think it's called. Uh, the majority of his huge force were, lo- were lost to a disastrous error on the part of the Roman commanders. So uh, the Roman general's plan at Cannes was to ad- advance and punch through the Hannibal's thin battle line, uh, putting faith in their much larger superior infantry force. So Hannibal had uh, basically strategized that they were going to try to do this. And so he first orders infantry to feign a withdrawal uh, in the center of his formation, drawing the eager Romans towards uh, the crescent-shaped battle line. Uh, and then when the Romans were just unsuspectingly running in after the Carthaginians on the run, uh, they drove uh, their forces really deep into that crescent shape. And then Hannibal's cavalry then drove the horsemen who protected the, the Roman flank and circled the backside of the Roman force, uh, basically charging the rear. So what happened here is the Roman commanders didn't realize their mistake when they pursued that uh, classic bait-and-switch tactic. Uh, and the Carthaginians' infantry crescented, formed around them uh, so that literally they were packed so tight the Roman armors, the Roman soldiers weren't even able to move their arms or swing their swords. They were that packed in that tight. It's almost like that. And they just, like, enveloped them from the yeah, back. Yeah, and then they just slaughtered them, it just in and out and out. Uh, so it was kind of a... It reminds me of that scene on uh, Game of Thrones when he when he they circle everybody up and they just start. Oh yeah, they just they're all smothering each other and they just can't go anywhere. Uh, so he says one thing is interesting is that due to the brilliant tactics, Hannibal managed to surround and destroy all but a small remnant of the enemy, despite his own inferior numbers. Uh, de- depending on the source, it is estimated that fifty to seventy thousand Romans were killed or captured. 
Among the dead were those two Roman consuls. Uh, were, were, were Roman consul Lucius Aemilius Paulus, two ca- consuls of the preceding year, two castors, uh, 29 of 48 military tribunes, and an additional eight, 80 senators at the time when the Roman Senate was composed of no more than 300 men. This cons- constituted 25 to 30 percent of the governing body. This makes the battle one of the most ca- ca- catastrophic defeats in the history of ancient Rome and one of the bloodiest battles in all human history in terms of the number of lives lost in a single day. Um, so I thought that was really cool. And like that battle actually smashed such a huge percentage of the Roman army's force that like after that, they were like, okay, we need to conscript anybody like soldiers, gladiators, everybody. Just like everybody. Uh, Cause they got come one, come all smashed so bad. I think this is a, this is kind of a military blunder on, on, on many different fronts. One, cause of the Romans, they underestimated uh, the tactic, they just ran into it. They thought that they were. Be- they thought they could uh, just kill him right there. And then they ran to a trap. So that was a blunder. But also, uh, Hannibal's marched all these uh, infantry and cavalry and elephants across the Alps. He lost a lot because of that. And in the end, he ended up having to go back, and he actually lost that Second Punic War, uh, even though he did win a decisive victory at this battle. Um, so it, it's kind of interesting. Uh, you know, to uh, to read about that, and you look at like the the trail that they took through the Alps, and when they came out, they were basically all starving, and like the elephants were all malnourished, and they couldn't even use the elephants. Yeah, and, um, so it's pretty uh, pretty interesting. That would have been terrible to march in that army. Well, you, you just wait. I'm talking about the Napoleon's invasion of Russia, oh. <laughs> and you'll, you'll you'll be like, man, actually, I would rather be in the, the Alps. War. The Alps maybe would have been nice. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, so I'll tell you that story in a minute after you tell you. Interesting. <clears throat> All right, so one I had was more of a, a kind of a, a government blunder um, that uh, maybe sounded good uh, at at the proposal table, but execution was just lackluster. Let's say. So the Department of Education. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> there's probably a lot of things we could talk about with that. Um, so I want to start off by talking about something called gun walking or letting the guns walk is a tactic that the uh, Arizona U.S. Attorney Office used um, and particularly around the the ATF used this tactic of gun walking. And the tactic... Ah, the old ATF. Yeah. So the tactic basically was to allow... Uh, gun dealers to sell guns illegally to people and then they would track I'm doing air quotes track those guns to see where they go right and to see where they end up if they end up in the hands of cartels and everything so they're trying to they're trying to crack down on the illegal sale of firearms from the United States into Mexico they're working with the gun dealers to allow to yeah so they're working with the gun dealers and so they're making just, them sell illegal guns yeah so basically um what happened was the uh the biggest of these blunders that I'll say or the biggest of the of the the things that I'm going to say is um 
in October 2009 and uh, also February of 2010, there was an, an operation called Operation Fast and Furious. Um, the the agents in the, the ATF ended up calling it that because uh, the agents discovered that... Um, kind of the, the main gun runner, the main guy that was in charge of it, and some of the other suspects were actually, they all belonged to a car club. And so they called it Fast and Furious. Um, <laughs> so what happened was um, the the government allowed all of, uh, they provided these dealers, these gun dealers, with all these firearms. And they wrote down all of the information on these firearms. So they got the serial numbers, and they got the the specs, and this and that. And I don't know all the details they got. I don't know if they got down to like firing a bullet and looking at like, um, you know, specific ballistics out of a rifle or whatever else. But their whole goal was to uh, sell these guns to people that they knew were illegally buying them and that they were going to try and track them. But the word track is like a very loose term. It's not like they had a GPS no, on No, they don't have a GPS on or whatever else. Basically, they're just tracking it because they they know the, the serial number. That's really the only way to like track these guns. And So it's like if I sell you, if I'm like, hey, I give you a dollar, and I know that the serial number on that dollar, and then I don't know who you're giving that dollar to, but I'm like, oh, I'm tracking that. Yeah, but if, <laughs> you know. There's no but, way to track that. But if Unless somehow, it shows up at a bank or it shows up at a crime scene. Yeah, it shows up yeah. at a bank or a crime scene or, you know, in, in, in the gun world, I guess, if it's bought illegally and then someone takes a, you know, a, a, hand, to a, FLM hand, dealer or something yeah, like that. a handgun and somehow it goes back into the system and gets, you know, somebody runs a check on it or whatever else, then it'll probably pop up in some federal database that says, oh, this is one of your... Guns, right? This is one of the guns you've been tracking. Yeah, but if you're selling it to the cartels, uh, yeah, they're not using the U.S. tracking system. <laughs> um, so in total, um, there was during the operation Fast and Furious the the largest gun walking probe. The ATF monitored the sale of about two thousand firearms. Um, that was mostly. Uh, semi-automatic rifles, maybe AR-15, some handguns, um, but you know maybe AK-47, some things that uh, are cartel-like weapons. Um, so they started tracking these, tracking these guns, and they actually were able to recover. Supposedly, they recovered 700 of these of these guns. So the reason why it was a blunder is because as soon as they sold these guns, uh, they disappeared. They just completely disappeared. They lost all sight and they had, had no idea what happened. Most of those 700 guns that were found were at crime scenes (laughs) and maybe they had circulated back into the United States somehow and got purchased you know, legally through an FFL or federal, someone with a federal firearms license, and it was verified, and 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 you know they found it that way. Um, so that's kind of one reason why it was a blunder, just because there was zero visibility to all these guns that basically they just gave to 
gave to, gave to criminals who put them in their fast cars and fast and furious them down across the border and just sold them to the cartels. cartels yeah. Um, so that was the first blunder. Uh, second blunder is it says guns tracked by the ATF have been found at crime scenes in both Mexico and the United States. Um, and, uh, they were found at a crime scene where a U.S. Border Patrol agent named Brian Terry was killed in December of 2010. So there was a couple. There was a, a couple of uh, Mexican nationalists that had crossed the border, and they were sitting in wait, basically, for uh, people to cross illegally from Mexico into the United States, and then they would just rob them. And they would rob these people because yeah. uh, a lot of times they have their entire life savings in cash on them and they've got, you know, the jewelry or whatever else. So they just rob these people that are crossing the border illegally. And wh- who's going to do what about it? Yeah, because they're doing something illegal yeah. anyway. So the um, a, uh, a group of border, con- border patrol, I guess it was a, a, a patrol, a group yeah. of agents came up on them kind of surprisingly. They were both surprised by it. And a gun, uh, a shootout ensued, and this one officer, uh, this one agent, Brian Terry, was killed. Um, Whenever they did an inspection of the scene, they found two firearms that were used, uh, semi-automatic rifles that were used, and both of them were serial numbers from from this gun blunder, right? From from the Fast and Furious blunder. So... um, it makes you wonder if it was a blunder after all. If they were like, "Well, let's just flood the border with guns," and then we can say, "We need to, you know, our borders. We need to cut down on gun violence, or our borders not secure, or whatever the yeah. political message is at the time." How do we prove that it's not secure? Oh well, let's just send a bunch of guns over there and see what happens. Let's see how much violence ensues. Yeah, let's and then stir we'll, the pot. Yeah, it's like you know you have, you know you have a a, a pot of boiling oil. Right, and you're like, okay, you know, it's just the boiling oil is just completely fine. It's right, and then you say, oh, well, this isn't crazy enough, so you dump a bunch of water in it, and it's just going to go. Let's see if it explodes. It's yeah, explode. you know it's going to explode. So you're giving guns to criminals and then expecting them not to use them. Yeah. So a couple interesting facts on this one. So that was in um, early to mid or early t- 2010. The Border Patrol agent was killed in December of 2010. So a year later, in December of 2011, the Justice Department reacts to uh, some letters that were sent to Congress on February 4th before the Operation Fast and Furious uh, in the early days, and the letter denies that the agents ever knowingly um, allowed suspicious guns to be trafficked. So... They claimed that, oh, the agents didn't even know that these guns were going to be trafficked and that it was just a miscommunication. They, it, was, it wasn't supposed to happen, right? So uh, justice officials say they relied on the federal prosecutors and agents in Arizona because they were the ones that wrote that letter to Congress saying, we didn't know. Mm-hmm. So in June 28th of 2012... The Republican-led House voted 255 to 67 to find the Attorney General Eric Holder at the time, who was the one that kind of 
uh, was one of the one's main guys in this Operation Fast and Furious. They found him in contempt, and they said that the Obama administration was withholding documents related to how it responded to the Fast and the Furious scandal. Okay, so obviously Obama knew what was going on. Uh, it was during his administration. It was underneath yep. his jurisdiction. And in 2012, they said, hey, yep, Attorney General, he was in contempt, and Biden's not, or uh, Obama's not given us the documents that exist. Mm-hmm. And so at that time, most of the Democrats, many of the Democrats, refused to even cast votes in that um, in in that vote, and they staged a massive walkout on the House floor, calling the vote politically motivated. Okay, so the Justice Department says that it already provided thousands of documents to the House, and that there's continued negotiations going on to access to access more to gain access to more. After all of these to- these negotiations and these talks failed, Obama claimed executive privilege over the remaining records. Oh, executive and, privilege. And said, no, I'm just claiming executive executive privilege over these. Nobody's going to get them. Yeah, and that's exactly what the, they're absolutely blasting Trump over now. Yeah. Is this executive privilege? Well, the ATF has so many blunders. Oh, I yeah. don't know how they can even believe. Anybody can believe and believe anything the ATF says. Well, they're totally incompetent. Yeah. I mean, one thing, so many scandals after scandal after scandal, it's just like, Well, and you even wonder, I mean, the ATF is the alcohol, tobacco, and firearms and explosives. The Bureau of Alcohol, Alcohol, Tobacco, Firearms, and Explosives, the ATF. So they're supposed to, like, really get it, right? I mean, they're supposed to understand it. But the ATF keeps coming out with all of these crazy basically laws in changing the rules even most recently on like the whole bump stock debacle oh, with yeah. uh oh bump stocks are are full you know make your your weapon fully automatic well no it no it doesn't yeah. it just make it just helps you to pull the trigger one time you know one time after the other a little bit faster and so you know it's just like they, they keep they keep moving the goalposts down and down and down and down and down because it's like they don't really understand. They they release these documents that are like, well, that doesn't really make sense with what current technology is. Um, yeah. So I think I think it's just a whole. It was a blunder in and of itself that whole thing. But how much? How much don't we see? Yeah. Well. Well, yeah, exactly. And one of my, one of them that I didn't look into with this one was also the Benghazi attack. Oh, yeah, and for so, sure. And remember, when Obama left office, he said, oh, we didn't have any serious scandals during my presidency. <laughs> it's like, what was that? <laughs> yeah, seriously. Well, while Hillary told everybody just to uh, chill out while yeah. while our embassy was getting freaking pommeled. Yeah, what difference does it make? Uh, you know, yeah. what happened? Uh, you know, wipe the emails with like, a cloth. Like with a cloth? <laughs> yeah. Oh, my gosh. How stupid could you be? Yeah. So, um... Yeah, that's an interesting blunder. Uh, so let's go. Let's rewind the clock back to 1812, the, also known as the War of 1812. But don't be confused with the War of 1812 in America, which was between America and Great Britain. This was the War of 1812 in. Europe. I recently read a book about that. Well, it was a book about Andrew Jackson, who was one of the major 
generals in the War of 1812, but okay, go ahead. It's really cool. This is a, a different War of 1812. So this is when Napoleon <clears throat> did his Russian campaign. He wanted to push all the way to Moscow. This time, Napoleon had taken over the majority of Europe, uh, and he was like hell-bent on, on going to Russia. Uh, and so this was likely the, one of the most lethal oper- military operations in the world history, and I'll tell you why. So at the time, Napoleon, and this is in the, the summer of 1812. Napoleon amassed an invasion force of 450,000 men, 150,000 horses, 25,000 wagons, 1,250 pieces of artillery. Uh, he, so he gathered these guys from France and what he wanted to go and to invade Russia. Uh, he, so he departed France in June and they returned six months later uh, with very, very few, much fewer men. Uh, so in, in total, the army started with about, and there's some debate on, on how much, but generally it's, con- it's thought to be about 612,000 combatants, uh, and he returned with only about uh, 110,000 of those. So about 500,000 people died uh, in the six months time period. 500,000 people That's a lost lot. in his army. Yeah, it is a lot. Was it, I mean, what did they mostly die from? Well, I'll tell you. So okay. On the way there, uh, so as they marched toward uh, Russia, towards Moscow, so they want to go towards Moscow, take Moscow. Uh, within the fr- even within the first two weeks, so this is leaving from France, right? Yeah, Against Napoleon. Was, yep. Okay. Uh, even within the first two weeks of July, uh, the Grand Army uh, lost one hundred thousand men due to sickness and desertion. So, In July. Yeah. So there, this is even the summertime. The thing is, is that they thought. So the Napoleon falsely believed that the Russians would deploy their army in a conclusive battle, uh, but instead they they continued to withdraw deeper into Russia uh, territory. As the Russians retreated, they would do like a scorched earth methodology where they would burn everything, all the crops, burn in the villages, uh, making it impossible for Napoleon's troops to like do anything. Like they don't have any food, their supply chain could not catch up uh, to the Napoleon's march. And uh, <clears throat> Napoleon, especially in the last little bit before he got to Moscow, which happened in uh, kind of the October time frame, uh, he rushed and rushed and rushed the, f- the forces uh, to hurry, hurry, hurry. And their carts were breaking down. All this stuff was getting busted. Uh, a lot of men died in that last little leg. They had several battles along the way. Uh, but starvation was a huge thing, and he pushed them really hard. And a lot of men died, even just that uh, last little leg of the trip. So that when he, well, when he reached Moscow, it was totally his army was a serious loss. Now, some of the numbers here are confusing, and and I looked at there's. Two different things. There was a famous map uh, that was made about this. It's kind of a, it's called the Menard map. It's w- like the one of the best. It's known as one of the best statistical graphs ever drawn. Hmm. Uh, this was by a French guy uh, in, I think he was a French guy in back during that time, uh, and it, it, it's a map that shows like a really thick line that shows the start, how big it represents how big the army was. And you see the thick line going all the way to the left of the paper, and it gets thinner and thinner and thinner and thinner as it goes on, representing uh, the number of men that he had lost. Now, 
and then and then and there's another line and then it reaches it's kind of like a map too and then it's at Moscow and then it shows the return and how that line got thinner and thinner and thinner and thinner, and thinner all the way back even coming back so that map has a little bit of a different numbers so that map starts with 400,000 men and then when it gets to Moscow it's at 100,000 men hmm uh which is a little bit different because uh <clears throat> uh this other thing said they started with 600,000. So I'm not exactly sure uh, what the differences was. I was trying to look at the differences. Maybe that was after the first summer. No, this was the whole campaign, but uh, because then it looks comes back too. So when they came back, so when they got to Moscow, they took Moscow, but uh, everybody had left. They had burned the city. They had burned their capital city. They had moved back, and so it was like there was nothing there, but it was the weather was actually pretty decent because it was in October. Uh, and Hitler, st- not Hitler, Napoleon stayed, uh, he actually stayed too long. Uh, and he actually decided to stay an extra like five weeks. And so they left in October, mid-October. And the cold weather during the t- retreat absolutely brutally decimated his army. Uh, and so I'm going to read the, the known as the long retreat. So... Similar to the Russians, we talked about Stalingrad in one episode, similar to the Russians or the Germans going into Stalingrad, uh, they were not prepared. They didn't have any winter clothes. Mm-hmm. They were ill-equipped for the cold. They Their little tents couldn't do jack squat. And so I'm going to read a, a quote here that talks about that winter and what it was like and, and, and this march back. Uh, I mean, essentially, they... Uh, they weren't taking any consideration for military positioning or provisions of war. They were literally just trying to get back, like just flight. There was just as a flight back home. Uh, and there were in absolutely no condition to fight. Uh, in fact, one French officer units of, he had 15,000 soldiers in his, and, and in three days time with night temperatures and negative 31 degrees Fahrenheit, he lost 12,000 men just because of the cold. In three days. In three days. 12,000 men dead and no battle just because of the cold. Because they're sleeping outside, they're freezing to death, they're dying. Uh, and and also on the way back, you know, they're kind of running into some a little bit of... Uh, a little resistance. bit of Russian resistance for those who had stayed, but they're just freezing to death, literally. Uh, this, this one... Ca- paragraph here kind of tells almost like a firsthand experience of how it happened it says bad luck to those who fell asleep by a campfire furthermore disorganization was perce- perceptively uh, gaining ground in the guard one constantly found men who overcome by the cold had been forced to drop out and had fallen to the ground too weak or too numb to stand ought one to help them along which practically meant carrying them and they begged one to let them alone there were uh, bivocus all along the road. I think those are just like little like sleeping bags or something. People trying to get warm. Uh, all along the road, uh, ought one was to take them to a campfire. Once these poor wrenches fell asleep, they were dead. If they re- resisted the craving for sleep, another passerby would help them along a little further, thus prolonging their agony for a short while but not saving them. For in this condition, the drowsiness uh, endangered by the cold is irresistibly strong. Sleep comes inevitably, and sleep is to die. 
I tried in vain to save a number of these unfortunates. The only words they uttered were to beg me for the love of God to go away and let them sleep. To hear them, one would have thought sleep was their salvation. Unhappily, it was the poor wretch's last wish. I wonder if the hypothermia just leads to a desire to sleep. So, yeah, you're yeah. literally your body's shutting down. And so, like, l- these people are like literally dropping like flies on the side of the road, just left and right. Uh, the army is just drudging back through the snow, and people are just just let me sleep, just let me sleep, and they're freezing. I mean, like it's just like no, you can't sleep, you know. And, and people dying left and right. It's it's a crazy. And like I said earlier. Uh, that one map, that Menard map, uh, they showed that only 10,000 made it back uh, out of really? the original 400,000 that left. Uh, the other numbers were 600,000 left and only 100,000 made it back. It's uh, a similar, still, similar ratio. But still, uh, significantly you know, less. One interesting thing about the Menard map, which is reason one reason why it was called the best statistical graph ever drawn, uh, is it displayed the number of troops? the distance traveled, the temperature, the latitude, longitude, the direction of travel, and the location and dates for each one of these uh, times they had a battle or they crossed a river or these mm-hmm. different things. So it's really interesting. I'll have to post it on the social, on our, on our, ins- on our uh, social Instagram or, or what have you. Uh, it's, I learned about it when I was doing my, my master's in, in data science. Uh, it's kind of one of those classic ones. But, and at the time I, I learned about it, I was like, oh, okay, like, this doesn't really make a lot of sense to me, but now after researching, I'm like, "Well, oh, this is this tells a good story." Uh, and so, talk about a military blunder. You know, he goes in with full force uh, with all these men ready to fight, and he literally loses it all because he wasn't supplied correctly. Uh, all this stuff. You think and, ro- and accomplished what? Really nothing. I mean, he, he took made, Moscow, he, but he, he made it to Moscow, it. but then he turned around and left. Yeah, exactly. Uh, you think about the Russians and how they've won these different wars, you know, the battle of Stalingrad, uh, all these other battles Mm -hmm. because they know supply lines are so important. Uh, They know about uh, the winters or can be very costly and and very harsh. But when they invaded Ukraine, dude, their supply lines are all over the place, man. It's like a bunch of amateurs here invading Ukraine. I don't know. It's like, kind of bizarre to see some of the blunders that Russia's making right now. You saw their their convoy that was going on for like 80 miles, just one road. They, yeah, they're, and they're like, oh, the, the the lead truck ran out of gas, and so everybody's just stuck. Yeah, and, the, and then it's Ukraine like, basically ran a drone what? down there and just destroyed almost that entire convoy. Yeah. I was hearing one thing where they, they were trying to take a city, a strategic city, and so they built like a... a Russia was? Yeah. Russia built, and this is like in the current war with Ukraine, they built a makeshift uh, bridge to get across this this, this river. Uh, and they got about a couple of uh, trucks onto the bridge. The Ukrainians just rocketed the bridge, blew up the bridge, sunk all the, 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 the cars. They did it again. Same thing happened again. They did it again a third time. Same thing happened. And it's just like, what? <laughs> Something's going on there. <laughs> yeah. Oh man, it's like I don't know what in the heck is happening, but I saw one and the Russian guy was sitting on a tank and he had those Adidas pants on, you know, like this yeah. typical. And it's like, oh man, they're e- those guys are even running out of <laughs> supplies. <laughs> <laughs> they're having wearing their Adidas sweatpants to fight in their tracksuits. <laughs> yeah. Oh jeez. So, anyway, that's a that a sounds wild story. that sounds even worse than crossing the Andes. 
yeah with with alps yeah the the alps with with hannibal part what i was thinking is like imagine being that commander over those fifteen thousand troops and you lose twelve thousand men in three days time imagine how heavy that would weigh i was gonna say i'd feel guilty i feel super guilty like i i just i mean i would be feel guilty if i just lost one man under my command but to lose twelve thousand in three days because of the cold Oh, man, I would feel guilty, but I would I would also be I'd be pissed. I'd be pissed too, I'd, be, yeah. I'd be mad. I mean, at my superiors and who's make whose idea was this is what I'd be saying. Yeah, but yeah, yeah I don't know. Well, last one I had, um, I, I won't uh, drown it out too long, but um, this one was actually a, a movie from 2017 uh, that was called American Made uh, with Tom Cruise. So. I don't know if anybody's seen that before, but the movie wasn't as wasn't an exact representation, but it was pretty close to the story, the true life story of uh, a man named Barry Seal. So uh, Barry Seal was an American commercial airline pilot who became a major drug smuggler for the Medellin cartel. Uh, when Seal was finally uh, caught. And convicted on smuggling charges, he became an informant for the DEA and uh, was kind of pivotal in, ta- in, in gathering evidence, I'll say, on some of these, uh, these major uh, drug cartels and, and um, smuggling rings and different things like that. So um just a little bit of uh, his backstory so in 1964 seal joined the TWA as a flight engineer so TWA was like a flight company like a, a you know air- airline kind of thing um and he was actually really good at his job so he uh was promoted uh, pr- pretty quickly to first officer and then captain and then after a while he actually got in trouble and he got uh, arrested for for being involved in a conspiracy to smuggle a shipment of plastic explosives to Mexico. Um, but apparently during the case when uh, in 1974 there was some prosecute, prosecutorial misconduct and the whole case was dismissed. And so they were just like, ah, whatever. So they dismissed the whole case, and he huh. he he was free to go, right? So then he 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 got he started getting deep, right? So he started smuggling. He at first he admitted to start smuggling small amounts of marijuana into the United States from uh, Central and South America. <laughs> admitted to smuggling small amounts <laughs> in the early kilos in, yeah, in early 1976. Uh, but in 1978, he had expanded his flying. Um, let's say into more creative situations and uh, increased his loads significantly and uh, transitioned to cocaine, which was pound for pound much more profitable for smuggling into the was United States. Was he flying States. from Columbia to Miami? No, so he was in um, uh, Louisiana. And so what he would do, basically his tactic was he would fly down to uh, Columbia or at one point they moved to, um, I think, Nicaragua. Uh, but Nicaragua's w- in Africa. What, isn't that, that's it, Nigeria. Oh, that's okay. Never mind, yeah. um, so he would fly down to Columbia 
and he would load up his plane, and he would fly back, and he would fly really. His smuggling method was he was he would fly really low, um, and he would to stay off the radar to stay off the radar, and he would uh, airdrop packages of drugs out of the bottom of the plane in remote areas of Louisiana. Then he would have his ground team go and collect the the drop drugs and they would transport them to Colombian distributors in Florida. Um, and at, at one point he had he commissioned his his brother-in-law and um, a couple other guys that he met in jail. I think he was in jail in Honduras and met a couple of, of, of uh, drug dealer contacts and everything. And so uh, 1982, he was using over a dozen aircrafts in this smuggling operation. Um, and So he was hit more people flying than just him. Yeah, yeah. So, so he contracted other pilots to get in on this. Um, and so the number of planes and the frequency at which these planes were traveling back and forth from Columbia attracted some attention with the Louisiana State Police and the federal government. So a little bit about the money that he was making. So in 1981, kind of in the height of what he was doing in his in, in this smuggling, um, when he was smuggling the cocaine for the, for the Medellin cartel, at his peak he was earning as much as $500,000 per flight transporting a shipment of cocaine from Colombia to the United States. So, 500000 half a million dollars. How did he get that past customs? Did he drop that too? The drop money? The, the money? Or did he keep uh, it in the plane? I, I, I don't know exactly how he did it. I don't know if he dropped it or not. But Well, and I think a lot of times too is that, and in the movie, they... Once he starts, so he had like private air, um, yeah, private airfields that he would fly to and like dump the money before any checks or custom I checks or works, anything else. Uh, I, don't, I don't know exactly how he did it, but um, by, by 1983, Seal had flown over a hundred flights carrying tons of cocaine, uh, smuggling into the United States with a total value street value of three to five billion dollars wow um so i mean if he flew over a hundred flights and potentially in the height of it he was making a half a million dollars per flight i mean that's a lot of money why would Um, the government allow him to keep doing this so uh basically in 1981 the dea um they caught him and they caught him by there was a an, an informant that introduced Seal, who's the guy, to a undercover DEA agent who asked him and convinced him eventually to smuggle twelve hundred pounds of methylqualone tablets. I don't know some kind of drug. I don't, I don't know what methylqualone is, but. Uh, uh, it's uh, uh, tablets into the United States from out of the country. But the thing was that all these tablets were counterfeit. They were just like pressed chalk. And he ended up doing it, and um, he, he, got, he got caught. He got got. Um, 
so it, while he was in prison, he was trying to figure out, well, how do I get out of this? How do I get out of this? So he called the uh, the vice president drug task force and said, I've got a bunch of information. You know, I, I can help you guys out. And they said, uh, we don't really care, but call the DEA. And so he called the DEA and they were like, well, you know, whatever. And they talked to him and they were like, well, they evaluated him and they actually were pretty impressed with the people that he knew within the cartel. And so they signed a, a an agreement, right, that they were going to have. Um, but part of that agreement was that um, he had to, uh, Seal had to set up some of these cocaine purchases with the Ochoas, which was like a big uh, drug name, uh, Pablo Escobar, um, and a couple other big names within the cartel world. Uh, and so he ended up doing it. He set up this meeting, and they, he had his plane rigged with cameras and ended up getting some pictures of Pablo Escobar loading cocaine into the uh, plane. And this was kind of maybe, I think, in the early days of Pablo Escobar. Um, and... He he gathered all this evidence for him, but really it didn't didn't really go anywhere. I mean they 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 used it and they uh, they indicted Pablo Escobar and a couple other people and and they you know basically an indictment when somebody else is in a different country is just like hey we're looking for you. It's like okay yeah. Um, what what, what was interesting is that the the DEA allowed him to continue to smuggle these drugs and what would happen is that he would bring them in he would land in the United States and th- how he kind of got caught by the um how it, it it got busted wide open with the cartels was he brought a shipment in it landed in the United States and they transferred it to a truck and then they, he took that truck to the Colombian distributors that were going to take it to Florida. Well, the government's like, we can't just let all this cocaine get sold and go into the thing. So they, but they were like, but we can't just arrest these guys because then the cartel's going to know that you know that Seal is a, a, a you know crossing them. And uh, so they're like, well, we'll just stage an accident with the truck. So they, like sabotage the truck, and then the truck crashed. And then the two uh, Colombian guys, they ran, and then the police ended up picking up one of them, and then he got caught anyway, and the and the cartel figured out that uh, Seal was in on it and everything, and um, the uh, apparently Seal was paid around seven hundred and fifty thousand dollars per uh, some of these last plane rides that he did uh, when he was working for the government. But he got paid that by the cartel, and they let him keep, uh, you know, like uh, just over half a million dollars of of each one. Which I don't know why they would let him keep that, but they let him keep it. So um, he's taking the risk. I'm sure he negotiated that. <laughs> yeah, that's true. So there was a a hit, a contract that was put out on on uh, Barry Seal, uh, half a million dollars dead or a million dollars live, and. There was a, an assassin guy or a hitman that took the job, but then he actually got arrested for something else and then confessed to taking the job to kill to kill Seal. Eventually, in 1986, Seal was uh, shot to death in front of a Salvation Army Center. Uh, no way. Yeah, so uh, he was kind of uh, um, 
he had been he had been indicted in a bunch of different states and he was facing all kinds of issues but uh he was at this center in the parking lot of the Salvation Army uh, a couple of guys got out of a car behind the center uh, where you kind of drop donations off and they opened fired with suppressed Mac 10 submachine guns and they just That's a cartel l- hit. They just lit this guy up. He got hit uh 6 times in the chest and died. Should be wearing that body armor. Yeah. So Jeez, man. Um, you think you're going to, you think that they would put you in like ass, uh, witness protection or something, you know? Yeah, I don't know. I, I think I think it was a blunder because number one, all the all, drugs, all, got all the all the drugs probably got through anyway, right? Number two, they really didn't. I mean, they got evidence on cartel members. It's like, yeah, okay, everybody knows that they're cartel members and so it's like what really the evidence did, didn't really bring anything to light particularly yeah like, i what mean is the u.s gonna do like go into the heart of the cartel country in a different country yeah invade you know colombia and then go find him in the middle of the yeah. jungle and so I, I think it was kind of one of those things where it was like you know maybe it was a, a good thought but a poorly executed plan yeah um you know i i don't know there's a lot of money though in the movie, he has like so much money that he's just like burying it in holes in the backyard, and he like doesn't even know what to do with it. I wonder what happened like, to all that money. I have no idea. He got he had, he got married three times, and he had six kids. Money will do that. Dude. Um, yeah. So kind of a crazy kind of a crazy story. Number one that uh, it's true, and number two that uh, I bet things like that happen all the time. My confidential informants are, you know, yeah. Hey, we'll let you off. We'll let you off if you help us out. Give us some inside information. Yeah. No. So. Cool. Those are good stories. Uh, very interesting. Lots of lots of blunders, old and new. Yeah. So. All right. Well, uh, it was a good episode. Let's uh, look into some more of these and keep exploring history, and let's build that creed together. Let's do it. Let's do it.